Hey guys, welcome to the webcast. I'm here with Robin. Hey Robin, what's hey, up? Hey Courtney, what's up? how are you? I'm good, thanks. So what are we talking about today? What are we talking about? We are talking about, <laughs> this is episode five, four of our first things. Yes. Three <laughs> of the second things of objectivity, not opinion. It's a little bit confusing. Moral of the story is we're talking about moving from objectivity, or sorry, from opinion to objectivity yeah. in our first thing series, specifically looking at personal experience and personal spirituality as good second things and bad first things. Mm. All right, awesome. Yeah, it's gonna be good. Excited to be back. We'll be right back. I got something I gotta tell you. So get ready for another breakthrough. So let me show you what I mean. What I got is the new thing. Listen up, I'm gonna say it all right now. news of the week well first up we've got canada day coming up on july 1st it's All the right. same date every year yep. i know crazy <laughs> and uh, we're going to be doing some work to integrate international students who maybe haven't celebrated canada day before nicole haverkamp if you're watching you can drop the details in the chat uh, otherwise uh, somebody else from the international student engagement team can looking forward to celebrating canada day with everyone sweet we also have a welcome week brainstorming session tomorrow at noon in the general voice chat that'll be great yeah, it will be fantastic. Encourage you to be there. And excited to share an update on how we're going to be running our regional gatherings. So uh, as we've been shifting and anticipating a move back to gathering, hopefully one day soon, uh, we have created two new roles, specifically the role of gathering coordinator and production coordinator. These are roles that are going to come alongside the Simple Churches and Simple Church Regional Directors to help orchestrate our gatherings or our regional gatherings. And so huge thank you to uh, Ruben, Nigel, Josiah, Kezia, Eliah, Aiden, Rebecca, Matt, Levi, and the other Matt from Guelph for stepping up to serve in these roles. Really grateful for all of you and excited to see people in person hopefully one day very soon. Sweet. Let's get into some celebrations. So Amazing Grace, it's day four. So many people are getting exercise and building new relationships with people in the process. So what are your Amazing Grace celebrations? Drop them in the chat. Um, or if you have any photos, drop them in the chat too. Love to see that. Uh, we also are so grateful for everybody that celebrated the graduation ceremony. Did you yeah, catch it? It was great. It was pretty great, um, yeah. right? I mean, I was enthralled, really enjoyed it. So huge thank you to Vivian, Levi, Jaden, Alyssa, Carol, Nathan, Ruben, Kezia, and all of our Simple Church leaders for pulling that together. And thank you to everybody that graduated, especially those that have been serving faithfully during your degrees. We so appreciate all of you. Yeah, so celebrating the crew that goes biking together on Sundays. So it's so great seeing people live into church as family in this way. And shout out to Christian Paquette. Yes, I am pro-biking, no surprise there. <laughs> and also uh, excited to see some people jumping in with our Waterloo fam, some new people joining our Simple Church up there, and uh, excited about the opportunity that the warm weather is providing to continue to invite people in to church family. That said, we're going to pass it to Joelle, Austin, and Kate as they share some of their own celebrations. Hi, I'm Austin, and I'm from the MAC-A region. I'm excited to be celebrating the Welcome Week brainstorming session that we had last Friday. It was really great to get a few people together and brainstorm some ideas for the upcoming Welcome Week. 
and I'm really excited to see how God is going to use the Welcome Week to reach more students. So our next session is going to be on June 4th at noon, and I hope to see all of you guys there. Hi church, this is Kate from Mac Region C. I just wanted to celebrate the first week of the amazing race and just everyone from my simple church being so encouraging and running and walking together. I also want to celebrate Paula and Jess for inviting people not yet connected into a simple church to join us. Hi church, I just really wanted to celebrate Nicole and Shane this week. Um, they've been so intentional with Shane's neighbors and um, on Monday we got to share a meal with them, um, chat and play some games and it was really really nice to just invite some international students into our home and just spend some time with them. So you guys rock, Shane and Nicole. <laughs> everyone we have an interview today with Oge from Mohawk and I'm super excited so let's get right into it so Oge how are you how are you doing today <laughs> I'm good thank you good glad to have you so how did you get connected into our family how did you come to see Live Church as your family tell us about the journey I got to know about Live Church sometime in 2020 the beginning because at the time we still had in-person classes. And usually after my classes are like about seven, I would see like Billy banners outside the Ani. And I was always wondering like what was going on there, but I never really got there early enough. Mm -hmm. to it. And then I saw Meg Graham outside and she was, um, taking some of the chairs back into the army and like putting things away. So we kind of got talking and then she invited me for the next um, gathering. I wasn't able to make it the first couple of times she invited me, I must confess. Mm -hmm. um, after a while, I think I eventually made it. And the day I came, we were asked to gather in simple churches and I didn't know what that even meant yeah Meg is like yeah now you're in my simple church and I'm like sure <laughs> not quite sure what that is but yeah we prayed together and I went back to residence that night being like, yeah like it's cool I should try it out more mm -hmm. so as much as I could every day after class I would like try to attend as much as I could yeah and yeah, that was how she connected me to her simple church. And then I started going to huddles on Thursdays. Yeah. Very cool. That's so encouraging that you just went with it when she invited you in to a simple church. You just went along. So <laughs> how did... Oh, yeah? Oh, Meg, then you know that. <laughs> oh. Fair enough. So how did you end up staying at Mohawk? How did you see God's hand at work through the process? Um, It was... I would not still understand how it all happened, but basically I got offered a program at Sheridan and I also got a job there as an RA for September. So I was supposed to take a program in the summer and then transition to the fall, but somehow things didn't work out at all. Mm -hmm. And you know, during this time, I just kept telling my simple church to like pray about it and 
I was also in communication with my family as well. Mm-hmm. And it got to a point where we had to actually turn down Sheridan because we knew it was not going to work out because we couldn't meet the deadline that we were being told at the time. Mm-hmm. So I had to call Sheridan to cancel the offer and to cancel, like, defer my program. And I know I was so down. I was, like, so devastated because I wasn't sure what was going to come next. But I do remember that at the time I was still doing my apprenticeship training as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about missional living, all this proximity stuff thing. I remember jotting down one of the things that actually kept coming to mind. And it was like, what are the potential um, consequences of this decision I'm about to make? And in what specific way can I include my simple church? Mm-hmm. And one thing that I kept feeling the urge to do was to be vulnerable about how I was feeling during this process of uncertainty. So I know I would always bring it up during puddle and we would talk through it and everything. And the night I actually had to email Sheridan to tell them I wouldn't be able to make it, mm-hmm. I received an email that was sent to Mohawk a long time ago that I didn't see, telling me that I got approved for a graduate certificate. Wow. And I was like, oh. So I remember calling my mom, being like, hey, mom, so excited, being like, yeah, Moha gave me, like, mm-hmm. an opportunity to continue studying. She's like, yeah, we should take it. Like, what are you waiting for? Yeah. So even though till now, and I still don't know, like, how everything's going to work out or, like, the specifics, I know that I see God telling me, like, this is where I need to be right now. Mm-hmm. I might not get it. It makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It- way to me but it's just like you know what I don't know what it is but I'm gonna trust you (laughs) amen yeah just trusting in the Lord that's awesome so could you quickly tell me one way um that you hope God will work through and use you at Mohawk um one day I'm one way I'm really hoping God will use me is in the children's team Mm -hmm. I'm passionate about children about me yeah um, I'm hoping that I'm able to serve the children's team and I'm able to just use the gifts that I naturally mm-hmm. have of mm-hmm. the team during the summer for as long as I can, for as long as I'm yeah. here. That's but, really yeah. exciting, okay. I'm super encouraged and we can just close up in prayer. So I'll pray for you. Thank okay. you. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for Oge and her heart. God, I thank you for the ways that you're working in her life and um, the ways that she's trusting in you, God. I pray you continue to use her and just build her up and build your faith and lead others towards you, God, through her and her faithfulness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Oge, we will see you around. Bye. <laughs> All right, off to Robin now for the Discipleship Resource of the Week. All right, well, I wanted to quickly share with you our latest resource that we've put together to serve our church, which is uh, guides to the teaching we did two weeks ago to open up Objectivity Not Opinion as the uh, part of our First Things series. And we were really talking about how to interpret scripture. 
And oftentimes when we read scripture or we talk about understanding or interpreting scripture, uh, you'll hear terms about, I don't know, do I interpret it figuratively or metaphorically? Do I interpret it about, uh, you know, historical context? And people throw all these things kind of into the air and it can get really confusing. And we've taught a lot about um, how to interpret and how to understand scripture using the super easy hermeneutic guide. But we wanted to provide a tool that specifically helped identify where do I start? And uh, how do we develop and how do we go about thinking about a consistent approach of reading scripture? So that's what this guide does. It develops some key things that identify when we're taking good second things and making them first things. It's so important that each person has a well-developed understanding and approach to reading scripture. Number one, that they're actually reading the scripture for themselves. We shouldn't get our theology from blog posts. We shouldn't get our theology on our own. We need to do it in the context of church family by actually wrestling with scripture. And so that's what this guide does. It identifies four good second things, but bad first things that we do when we read scripture. So I encourage you to give it a read. Talk about it in your simple churches. Hopefully it'll help you love Jesus and love his word even more. That said, I'm going to pass it to Alex, who is going to take us through daily devos for this week, and then I'll be right back to talk about personal experience and personal spirituality as good second things. Hey church, I'm Alex. I'm a Simple Church member from Maxi. This week in our daily devo readings, Genesis 12 really stuck out to me. In this passage, God had made a promise with Abraham that his seed would be a great nation and would cover the earth, and he promised to bless and protect Abraham. Then just a few verses later, Abraham and his wife Sarah are traveling through Egypt, and Abraham gets scared that because his wife is really beautiful, someone is going to try and kill him so they can marry Sarah. So he immediately starts to make a plan on how to prevent this. Abraham had already forgotten that God had promised to protect him and bless him. There are definitely times in my life when I just want to take the reins from God, when I want to be in control, and no matter how much I try and I push, my plans don't usually end up working very well when I'm doing them on my own. For example, like when I was trying to find a placement for school, just kept hitting dead ends. But as soon as I consciously submitted my schooling to God, he revealed some really awesome plans that he had made for me. So I just want to encourage you this week, church, when you're feeling panicked or stressed, unsure of what's going to happen next, just remember that God has some really awesome plans for you, and they are so much better than we could ever imagine. Awesome. Well, good to be back with everybody talking about objectivity, not opinions, as part of our First Thing series. Now, to quickly recap this journey we've been on, and we're talking about how do we move from taking things that are good things, but not good first things. The whole principle of a first thing is that we have to put first things first. But when we put a second thing first, we end up losing the thing that ought to be first and the second thing as well as a result. It's important that first things go first. Now, in this regard, we've been talking at length about the importance of putting truth as a first thing and then orienting and putting opinions and perspectives and things like that as good second things. And we've applied that to uh, scripture. We've applied it to diversity and inclusion and how do we value lots of different uh, perspectives. That was last week. 
And this week, we're going to talk about the important role of personal experience and personal spirituality. So the first second thing that we're going to cover today is personal experience, or sometimes what people might say is lived experience is the phrase that's quite common today. Lived experience or personal experience. Now, every person, now th- to, to give some context here, this must be a second thing. Our personal experiences or our lived experiences must be second things behind the right first thing, which is scripture as a source of truth. Now, I'm going to expand this because it's, it's actually quite an important idea. But first off, every person has a, a really unique and beautiful story and, and set of experiences that positively and negatively affect the way that they interpret and understand the world. No two people will see the world the same way. Even two people raised in the same household that are roughly the same age and same gender and so forth will still have unique personal experiences. Each person, as a result, brings incredibly valuable experience to conversations, especially conversations around faith. And these, uh, the, the, the value that they bring to the conversations is derived from their unique perspectives, their unique experiences. Every person, because of where they were raised, how they were raised, their experiences, their families, their, uh, their gender, all these factors that influence how we understand the world are really important. Even two people that, as I said, have similar upbringings will still have unique perspectives that need to uniquely be shared. I don't think we have too many twins in the church, but I'm sure if we did, twins would even affirm that. They would say we have unique perspectives. We have unique temperaments, unique attitudes, unique reasons for seeing the world the way we do. And as a result, personal experiences are a powerful and authentic tool to understand someone else's perspective. We have to listen to people's experiences if we're going to listen, if we're going to understand them and if we're going to derive value from them. But we have to stop and ask a question. And the question is this, does our desire to validate others' personal lived experiences trap them in a world of self-deification? Now, you might not be familiar with the word self-deification. It means to make myself God. So said another way, does our desire to validate others' personal experiences trap them in a world where they are self-gods? What I'm really asking is, does our desire to validate, and this desire is often rooted in our compassion, desire to validate others' experiences result in them behaving like they are God? You see, God defines what is good, kind, and moral. God himself defines the value of creation. God defines the purpose of that creation and the manner in which that creation, that's namely us, how we ought to function. The authority of God to define things such as value, morality, and purpose means that our experiences are not authoritative. Let me say that again, because maybe I don't want to lose some of you in philosophy land here for a second. The authority of God to define what is valuable, 
moral, and purposeful. That authority, the authority to find those things is found in God, which means that the authority to find value, purpose, meaning, and morality cannot be found in our experiences. Either God defines morality or we do based on our experiences. Now, we can, here's the thing. We can easily get muddled up here because we can allow what feels to be true to actually be true. We can allow what we feel to be true to be true. Now, at an intuitive level, we know that this is not the case. How, what do I mean? Well, you see, we often, all of us have done this. We draw wrong conclusions based on our limited perspective on things. We may misunderstand someone's actions or words and therefore feel hurt by them. Our experience of hurt is altogether real, but it is not altogether true. So we might feel very genuinely hurt, but if we have misunderstood a person's actions, then there is a difference between what we feel to be true and what is actually true. A funny story about this, I was sitting outside my house on, or sitting in my house just after live cast on Sunday, we were chit-chatting with those of us um, as just a, a family, uh, Laura and I and Hillary, and I don't know if anybody else is there. I can't remember if we were on live cast call or not, but um, there was a guy waving at my house uh, from, uh, from the street, and I thought, oh, this must be one of the guys from across the street. He's waving at me. My experience was that my neighbor was greeting me. And I thought, how wonderful, my neighbor is greeting me. I'm gonna go out and say hello. And Laura looks at me, he's like, Robin, that's, the neighbor's not waving at you and that, we don't know that person. I'm like, totally we do. He's, he's our neighbor, he's waving at me. <laughs> so I go out to greet him and needless to say, he was not waving at me. So my experience on the surface was that my neighbor was greeting me. The reality was my neighbor was waving and greeting our cat, Samson. There was a difference between what I felt or experienced to be true, and I genuinely felt it, and what was actually true. Now, cool story, guys, I ended up inviting him to bonfire, and he came out to our house, and we had a bonfire on this week, and it was, it was really wonderful. You see, our experiences are real in that they actually happen to us, but they may not be true in, in that they our experiences may not accurately reflect what actually happened or what God's intent is. As scripture says, the human heart is deceitful above all else. You know, when I discipline my daughter, Kai, she's very strong-willed, capable. She's, she is going to be fiery, let me tell you. But when I discipline her, she feels hurt, right? She feels uh, offended or upset with me. And sometimes she's very angry with me. And based on those experiences, she might feel that I do not love her. When in actual fact, the truth is that even though her experiences or her feelings are telling her that I don't love her, the truth is that I love her so, so deeply. There is a difference and she must learn to look outside of her experience to find what is really true. 
It is really important that we honestly assess and admit to ourselves, how do I feel? Regardless of if those feelings are positive or negative, it is very important that we are willing to admit to ourselves, I feel this way. I feel hurt. I feel joyful. I feel angry. I feel hopeful. I feel offended. I feel grieved. I feel excited. I feel energized. That we look at ourselves and admit how we feel. But we must be careful to draw an immediate connection between what we are feeling or experiencing and why we are feeling it. We can validate as people what someone is feeling without necessarily validating why they are feeling it. Because their what and their why may not be accurately linked in their experience. And you see, this is actually really, really, really good news. Because even though our experiences and perceptions of the world are often not true or not good, we can nevertheless, nevertheless find out what is actually true and what is actually good by looking at the standard of Scripture. We don't, we don't navigate the world of experienced reality and truth in the absence of a guide. Psalm 119 teaches us that Scripture is a guide to our feet, a light to our path. Now, if we didn't have Scripture, this would be a very disorienting experience because we wouldn't know how to determine what is true and what am I feeling. But Scripture allows us to distinguish between those things. Now, the trap that many of us, even in our church, fall into is that we will be afraid to speak or speak from Scripture what is true because we do not want to invalidate someone else's experiences. And this is a good motivation. It is vital that we listen to others' experiences and seek to learn from them. However, it is very dangerous when we allow what others are experiencing to be the definition of what is true or good. In a colloquial, almost uh, like petty sense, there's phrases that we use to capture this. Phrases like follow your heart, right? Because your heart tells you what's true. You do you because as long as you're doing you, you're going to be doing what's good. Find your truth. I found my truth. I'm holding on to my truth. This is my truth. All three of these popular statements are an injunctive or an imperative to search for truth by looking inwards, inwards at ourselves, inwards at our experiences. This is seriously problematic because in short, it means that the definition of what is true or good or right is being placed on the created the creature not derived from the creator. When we treat our personal experiences as infallible, perfect, or as a source of truth, we are placing the burden of moral authority on ourselves rather than entrusting it to where it rightly belongs, which is with God. Now, you see, the human tendency to self-define morality based on our experiences, is one of the core messages of Genesis 1-3. to 3. 
At creation in Genesis 1, God creates the various aspects of creation and he uses the term good or very good in the case of humanity to give value, purpose, and meaning and a moral structure to the universe. Genesis 1 and 2, God defines morality. He anchors and he says, I am the one that says it is good. But in Genesis 3, you see that the man and the woman start to desire to self-define based on their experiences. They saw that it was good. They saw that they wanted it. They decided to start to define their own morality based on their experiences. In other words, they wanted to take on the mantle of being God. The consequences of this are brilliantly and tragically demonstrated in the book of Judges. The book ends with the refrain. It's repeated a number of times in the book, but the final line in the book is uh, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. So in other words, based on everyone's experiences, I'm going to live into my lived experience. I'm going to live into what feels good to me. I'm going to live into what seems right to me. I'm going to validate everybody's experiences and my own experiences as a source of truth. Did this create a peaceful utopia where everybody was happy and satisfied? No. There was not moral order, peace, and prosperity for all. Instead, as each person lived according to their own lived experiences, it created chaos, suffering, tyranny, and disorder. We cannot and must not and should not look to our personal experiences as an infallible source of truth. To do so is to trap humanity in a world of self-deification, making ourselves like God. The Christian vision of truth has always been to look outside of ourselves for truth. Our personal experiences uniquely and personally must drive us to the truth that is outside of those experiences. Truth is an external reality, not an internal reality. Jesus says in John 14, in dialoguing with Thomas, Lord, Thomas says, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now imagine if Jesus said, okay, you don't know where you're going. Well, Thomas, follow your heart. Look at your experiences. Trust your gut. No, that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't tell Thomas to look inward. He says, Thomas, verse 6, I Jesus and the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do we see this? Jesus is saying, I'm the anchor. Beyond the colloquial phrases used above that I've highlighted, follow your heart and so forth, There's this idea out there that we should never challenge, and sometimes this is explicit and sometimes this is implicit, that we should never challenge someone's experiences. 
But what this does is this takes a good second thing and makes it into a bad first thing. If we cannot challenge someone's lived experiences, then we must accept them as true. However, there is a big difference between listening compassionately to someone's experiences, asking good questions, and seeking to understand. These are all good things. There's a big difference between listening and validating and affirming those experiences as objectively and categorically true. Now, the challenge is, is that in our world today, if you challenge someone's personal conclusions that are derived from their experiences, people are being accused of increasingly inflammatory statements, such as gaslighting, canceling, erasing, denying their humanity, and so forth. But we must ask, how can we have a meaningful dialogue if merely to ask questions about a person's experience is to cause harm? How can we learn, grow, and understand, and extend true compassion if we cannot ascertain the real issues or find out our way to authentic, Jesus-centric truth? The idea that someone's experiences are always true is absolutely disastrous to discipleship. Why? Because it means that we can never speak truth into someone's life from Scripture. The job of the disciple is to listen to, see, and take into account their disciples' perspective and then lead them to an objective experience of Jesus and truth as best as possible. The Christian vision of compassion is not to blindly accept ideas and perspectives, but to listen carefully that we might point people to Jesus. We can only truly listen to another's perspective if we're able to consider the implications of that perspective on themselves and on others. Otherwise, we are just blindly accepting what might be harmful under the good intentions of compassion or listening. Concretely, when we read scripture from outside of ourselves, it should confront us convict us, and compel us to change. As it says in 2 Timothy, it is useful for rebuking, exhorting, and teaching. How can Scripture... Scripture cannot be authoritative in this way if we are testing it against our experiences. How can Scripture overrule my experiences if my experiences are authoritative? How can Scripture possibly win if... What I have experienced must be true. Scripture is the guide. Scripture is the source of truth. We must value people's experiences, yes, as a second thing. However, we should not accept them as definitive ontological categories, uh, sorry, definitive in the ontological categories, or in areas such as truth, purpose, and so forth. That's the first of the second things that I wanted to tackle tonight. There's a second one. It won't be quite as long, but nevertheless, closely related and just as important. This is, take a deep breath with me and have a sip of tea. There we go. I got some SME guys coming in from outside. I think they were doing 
maybe hot chocolate or lemonade or something. So if you heard the banging, I think it was SME guys, but uh, maybe Cassie or someone can uh, let me know or let people know what's going on. That'd be great. That said, we are gonna tackle our second thing here. So our second second thing is personal spirituality. The idea that you and I each have personal relationships with God. This is a really good second thing. But it must be a second thing behind a broader, deeper, multi-dimensional spirituality or spiritual discernment. My personal spirituality must be a second thing behind a proper process, first thing of spiritual discernment. So the Protestant Reformation, which happened approximately 500 years ago, uh, was really important and really beautiful and brought a lot of good. And one of the gifts that uh, the Protestant Reformation and Western society and civilization more broadly has brought was the emphasis on the individual. Ideas like individual responsibility uh, were really, uh, really have a rich history in the Protestant Reformation and in Western society. These are good things. And part of that was an individual experience of faith, also a good thing. A key part of the development of Protestant theology post-Reformation was the emphasis on the idea that each of you, and myself included, can directly and individually have a personal and meaningful relationship with God. It's one of like the true joys of the Christian life, that you can have a relationship with God. And there's a rich history here. No two believers are exactly alike, and therefore no two believers have the exact same experience and relationship with God. There's no formulas in Christianity. There's no, you have to do it this way and in this order. Why? Because each of us gets to journey our own journey, developing and figuring out who God is and what he is like in the way he has uniquely made us. Now, the Protestant Reformation came up with these five solas, key doctrinal ideas that shaped uh, the development of Christianity. They are the ideas that our relationship and our we are saved by Faith alone, grace alone, through scripture alone, through Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. These five really beautiful statements. All really good and important things. But I think what has happened as a result in part of the Protestant Reformation and the development of Western society is that we've added a sixth sola. And it's on my own alone. On my own alone. I don't need anybody else to develop my faith. I can just have my relationship with Jesus on my own and alone, me, myself, and I, and Jesus. We've taken a good second thing that I can have a personal experience with God and we've made it, therefore, I only need a personal experience with God. This leads to the question, does our emphasis on an individual relationship with God underestimate the power of a multifaceted spiritual discernment. Now, there's three ways that this often shows up. Three ways that we see this hyper-individualism. And I think, if I'm honest, church, uh, the individualism of Western society is probably one of the primary things that we run into as a church that we have to constantly be vigilant against. Everybody operating and living basically such that all that matters is their own personal spiritual journey, as opposed to asking the question, what if God is building a family? What, 
where does the room for family fit in? And so for the first, this, this is in the phrases that go something like, I've studied the scriptures and I've decided what it says or means to me. I've found my truth. But scriptural interpretation is not an individual act, a commu- but it's a communal one. We don't interpret scripture on our own, we don't read scripture on our own, and we don't decide what it means on our own. We do so in the context of covenant family. We can read it on our own, but it is better to read it in community. We can interpret it on our own, but it is better to interpret it in our covenant church families. Why? Because the human heart is deceitful. Our knowledge is limited, our perspective infallible. We need the body of believers to help us read scripture. We need the heritage of the church to help us read scripture. This is why we shouldn't do our theology from blog posts. This is why we shouldn't do our theology by some random pastor on the internet. So I don't tend to really care what's happening in the mega church world because they're not the pastors of this church. They're not the leaders entrusted of this church, this body of believers. We can't just pick and cherry pick our our teaching from wherever we want. It will be hopelessly incoherent. We shouldn't read and interpret scripture only on our own. We need our body of believers. We may be wrong, we may be right, but it's only when we allow other wise people who we are in relationship with to speak into our lives that we can really discover the joy of the scriptures. The first one is the way we read scripture. The second one is this attitude that says, well, I don't really need church, or I'm gonna choose to participate in church when it suits me, when it fits my calendar, when it works for me. Now, nobody says this outright, or very few people say this outright, but we model it with our behavior. We have to remember that as disciples, it's not what we say, it's what we do that ultimately is the measure of our hearts. And I must must wonder, like, how much do we really value the relationships we have in the church? You know, we... We will often, in the church world, and even in our church, move cities or jobs, move cities to get jobs and that sort of thing, and we discard our relationships as if they are easily replaced. But church, in my experience, it is far harder to replace relationships than it is to find a new job. Relationships, especially Christian relationships, are perhaps the only thing that we can carry towards eternity with us. Yet we treat them like they're totally dispensable so that we can pursue our own individual journey. We we, we model this all the time. All that matters is my spiritual walk with Jesus, what Jesus is calling me to. We must stop and consider, what about the people I'm discipling? How will my decisions affect those that I lead? That is a critical question that we must ask if we are going to encounter the fullness of what Jesus has for us in the gift of church family. I, you know, I've noticed, and 
if you look at the stats, particularly in men, um, life is onwards and upwards towards loneliness. We tend, life tends to get, in a lot of cases, more lonely. Have you looked at the retirement homes of our society? They are not bastions of hope and community. They are places of systemic broken loneliness. Why? It is an indictment on the individuality and individualism of our society. When we make decisions that always put me at the center, we are going to find ourselves isolated and alone at the end of our lives. And yet Jesus has offered us an answer in journeying as church family, covenanting together, saying, I will love these people, even though they drive me crazy. I will love them. You know, our simple churches often operate with this very awkward tension. I'm going to speak honestly for a moment here where the leader and the apprentice are like fully engaged and the rest of the simple church is kind of like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll plug in when it, when it suits me. I'll participate in huddle or simple church or whatever you lift church people call it. And I won't participate in the rest. And simple church leaders, I love you guys because you so often you find yourself standing in the gap, trying to invite people to experience a community that doesn't quite exist yet in a lot of cases. And it's been very hard with COVID I want to encourage you, Simple Church leaders, to have the courage not to, to command people to tasks. Our people don't need more tasks. Don't make people do tasks. Stop making people do tasks. It's not about tasks. It's not, we, why do we do daily devos? So that our church can read scripture together and love one another better. Not because we need another task to do. But Simple Church leaders, can we have the courage to call people into deep relationship? It is not healthy. Our simple churches are not healthy when it's just the leader and the apprentice trying to hold the thing together. We really need the whole family to be invested in the benefit and in the outcome of the whole family. To not live where it's me, myself, and Jesus on my journey together. But it's us as a family journeying together. In fact, we're actually going to be talking with our regional directors uh, about this. I don't even know this yet. But we're going to be talking about the need to make sure that, that we have good support for our simple church leaders so that they can have tough conversations to invite people to really journey in the depth of community and, and invite people to make decisions that are healthy, not just for themselves, but healthy for everyone. This is why Hebrews commands us to not forsake gathering together. We need each other. The first way this is evidenced is when we tend to just read the scriptures on our own. The second way is when we say, I don't really need my church. And the third way is when we use phrases like, I've prayed about it and I've arrived at a decision. This is one of the most frustrating things we do is we treat the process of discernment as, well, I just individually get to do and just decide what I'm going to do. And we inform people of what we have decided rather than inviting them to discern with us. Graham, our regional director for MACD, he, he, I love this. This is one of his passion points. And he, he often emphasizes the difference between discerning and deciding. 
When we decide, we make a personal decision and we inform. But in church family, we discern together, seeking out what is in the benefit of everyone. As Christians, we do not autonomously decide. We discern by surrendering the outcome to Jesus. Studying the scriptures to see what they have to say. Inviting the Holy Spirit into the process. And finally, by journeying as a community together. Discerning, not deciding. So why we taught a whole series on it and we wrote a book on it. I want to encourage you, uh, Simple Church Leaders, if you're struggling to figure out how do I create family, to take that book. I, I had a copy here. I forgot to bring it up with me. Um, we'll maybe get it during the break for Q&A. But to use it as a guide, especially the social piece, like it breaks people's brains. The surrender piece, it breaks people's brains. We should not say, I've, I've prayed about it and reached a decision. We should say, have we prayed about it? And figured out what Jesus is telling us to do. Journeying in community. The second things of a personal spirituality and personal experience are really good second things and really bad first things. Hopefully we see that there's a better way for us. That's it for me for a moment. I'm going to slide over. going to get Courtney up to help me navigate Q&A. And uh, we'll be back in just a second. Uh, you notice, here's the book I was talking about, Spiritual Discernment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you said that it was smaller than you expected. It is. It's, it's very so short. Yeah. I think it's 70 pages. I mean, to call it a book, it's like a pamphlet almost. <laughs> but we, we really worked hard um, to keep it short. So yeah. really helpful to read. Um, to journeying through finding truth together. Mm -hmm. So we'd love to see questions. Get them in. Yeah, I'm curious to see what people have to say or ask. Just reading through some of the comments. Some of the comments. Just, I'm also looking at some highlights. So Jesse here highlighted inviting people to experience a community that doesn't quite exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's we're living in the land of we're 
pioneering, right? Yeah. Like it's not fully established yet, mm-hmm. so we're still figuring some of it out. For sure. Um, but there's also a richness to our church family that is also really deep. Yeah. Um, it's funny. When you're on the journey, it feels like you've never arrived. But then people look at what we're doing as a church and they think that we're like so mature and established. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I feel like we're just a bunch of babies figuring <laughs> it out. Growing the boat. So. <laughs> And there's a oh, link. Emily's posting the yeah. link. Nice. Thanks, Em. So, yeah, I mean, I hope I hope what I was talking to in the Simple Church leaders there, that that connected with some people, like that, yeah. that tension of like mm-hmm. trying to create something, but you kind of feel like you're on your own. Yeah, um, it's true. And we're hoping that we can just maybe share some of that more vulnerably and more mm-hmm. honest together. And then also hopefully band together, support each other better in the process and yeah. even work across Simple Churches to create deeper community. Yeah get the momentum started yeah which is why i think the living the, the houses living together mm-hmm. is so positive yeah so um from the first part since there was a lot today mm-hmm. uh, yep. in terms of the personal experience is anything that stuck out to you courtney um no i think i hadn't really thought about that distinction very much right in terms of you can still listen and be there for someone and whatnot, um, but identifying when there is a mismatch with truth and objectivity and how it's not a bad thing to say that there is truth because there is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's horrible if we don't because we trap people. Yeah, into like, where they are, yeah. It's like, well, if there's no truth, then the only truth that they have to stand on then is their experiences. But if their experiences are wrong, yeah, that's a really bad, bad cycle. Don't want to be in it, yeah. So... Lots it's, of people, good. It's something that I'll keep, probably keep thinking about, like just so it sinks in my brain a bit because it's, I just haven't heard it spoken like that before. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah. Something I've been thinking a lot about lately. So, okay. um, and uh, I think just in our cultural moment, some of mm-hmm. these ideas are, I'm trying as best as possible to speak to this cultural moment yeah. that we find ourselves in, uh, in a way that's compassionate, but also still rooted, rooted in the truth. So, mm-hmm. um, Question there from Gordon. So how do you pick your battles? I can imagine a few situations why I may think somebody is wrong, but at the same time see it as an issue where people can reasonably disagree. Hmm. Good one. That is a great question, um, Gordon. A good a good test um, here is, is my primary motivation in engaging in this to help and love this person mm-hmm so that they can be more fully alive or so that I can be more right. If the goal is to be right yeah. or to win the battle, then we need to stop, go back, find our humility, not engage. But if our goal is to help someone because we genuinely love them mm-hmm. and want what's best for them, and we have to be careful here because the human heart, detecting our own pride yeah, is we don't always know. not always accurate. So this is where I think inviting some other people in mm-hmm. to, to dialogue with us can be really helpful. Yeah. Um, I guess Gordon also highlights perhaps you open to the possibility that I myself might be wrong. Yeah. Um, yes, I think that we, we can do that, but the calibration here that's important is that we also need to help people navigate to the truth. Mm-hmm. If we're so self-doubting, then we can never disciple anyone, right? Like at some point you have to be able to steer someone towards yeah. the truth. Yeah. And I think this is why everything has to be done in the context of community as a whole. Like, what does a community believe? Mm-hmm. What shared values do we have? What is scripture saying? What is the church at large saying? What is the church in history saying? And, and kind of 
have all these tests. And if all those things are lining up, then we can be you know, increasingly more confident. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, if our church community, scripture, history, um, our sense of what the Holy Spirit's saying are all lining up, we could probably be reasonably assured in, in what, uh, and what we're saying mm-hmm. and still approach it uh, with a posture of compassionately listening. So a really good technique that, that I would recommend here is to always make sure that before we engage in something to try to correct or uh, share our perspective, that we take the time to listen to why somebody thinks or is acting the way they do. Mm-hmm. Asking questions. If it's personal, t- t- tell me the name. Tell me the story. Tell me what happened. Help me understand. Um, and it, invariably, it will lower the temperature and the tension and create more space because people feel like, okay, this person actually wants cares. to listen. And, yeah. yeah, I see Adam's excited here about church history. Yes, uh, knowing what the church has believed and not just following the sound bites of what you read in a blog about what happened in church history, but trying to have some kind of decent knowledge of what happened in church, actual church history, would be really helpful. Um, it just so happens Adam's doing a PhD and just about done his awesome. PhD in church history. So, oh, yay, Adam. you know, he's a great resource you guys can lean on. Uh, Kirsten asks a question here. Yes. How do we go about bringing the truth of Scripture to the experiences of people who haven't accepted Jesus as Lord? How do we help them see or value truth that goes against their lived experiences when they will likely receive it as gaslighting, canceling, etc.? Ooh, that's a good one, too. Yeah, I think that there's a dance here um, because there's there's two extremes that the church falls into in, in this world, and both of them are really bad. So the one extreme, which everybody's familiar with, and I think generally the Canadian church doesn't fall into this too often, but it it probably does happen to a certain extent, which is going way too extreme on communicating, this is the way it is. You know, you're a sinner. And, you know, know, if that's someone's experience, I'm really sorry. Um, The church should not just like beat on the issue or expect people to behave as if Jesus is Lord when he is not their Lord. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the one extreme, right? So the answer is not to swing to the extreme of only truth. Mm-hmm. But we must also not swing to the other extreme mm-hmm. of saying, well, I'm just not going to say anything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pretend I have that this is a completely, they can do whatever they want, that it yeah. doesn't matter, that I don't think scripture speaks to it. And the reason that the other extreme of, quote, lots of maybe grace, as you might say it, so the truth extreme or the grace extreme, um, is bad is because eventually we have to clarify what we believe. Mm-hmm. And then that person is going to feel betrayed because they're going to be like, well, I thought you affirmed mm-hmm. my perspective or mm-hmm. my attitude or whatever. And so the best thing we can do is to build authentic relationships where we genuinely can demonstrate that we love people while simultaneously being transparent with what we believe. And I believe the best, most caring thing to do is to be honest with our lives this is what I believe. Mm-hmm. Let me show you I love you with my home, my life, and, and so forth. That way they're never surprised by our actions. But in fact, we create a distinction because they're like, you, re- you really love me. You really care for me, even though I know you don't necessarily agree with me yeah. and everything. And we have to model that out. We hurt people when we live in the extremes of that. We must mm-hmm. grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. His first, first word out of his mouth in the book of Matthew is the word repent <laughs> before anybody believed in him. He came full of grace and truth. So I think those things have to marry together. Okay. 
Uh, and I've seen a lot of harm caused by living in the extremes of maybe third way, we just won't have an opinion, we're just not gonna say anything, don't ask, don't tell, like all those kind of ideas, or you know, the placards and the billboards. Neither of those are very Jesus-y. Let's, let's live full of grace and truth. Couple more questions coming in. We can go to John's here. But for, okay, sorry, let's start again. Still thinking my question out, but for people whose vocation is working with a caring for people, is there a way to implement this caring challenge grid with non-Christians when biblical truth isn't really shared? I think that's a similar question to what John was, or what Kirsten was saying, but now in the context of the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think it would only be fair for me to say that it is decidedly more thorny in the workplace, yeah. um, in part because uh, the relationship is governed by law, it's governed by contracts, it's the, the, the premise of the relationship isn't two people freely associating, it's there's goods and services being exchanged, mm -hmm. there's professional associations, like it gets really, really muddy and really confusing. Uh, I think a good principle is that Christians, uh, and this would be, I think warrants a broader conversation, so I will say that we're not gonna be able to answer this in great detail, and maybe we should create space for this, John. But in principle, Christians should not violate their conscience. Um, so we should not, in the in the completion of our jobs, mm -hmm. do things ourselves or advocate for the doing of things that we believe are wrong. So we should not violate or advocate to have uh, that others violate yeah. what we believe to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Um, so in other words, we are we should be careful about how we how we disciple we, well, we're not discipling an employee or mm -hmm. a, someone that you know in your case, uh, John, you work with people who are vulnerable. Um, but at the same time, we should not be compelled to do things that violate that either. So and this is a really 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 complicated, and there's some great organizations out there that have done a lot of really great thinking on this. And I'll see if maybe I can do some research to compile some good resources on this subject. Um, so yeah. So it's kind of a, a non-answer, but maybe a little bit of a nugget there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Vivian asks, how do you point people you're discipling to the truth without diminishing their experiences? I can't think of a way to do it without being, without it, oh my goodness, I lost my place. Without it, having ultimately boiled down to, I hear you, and that sounds so hard, but that is false. Yes. Okay, great. Great question, Vivian. So this is really important. We don't change people. Mm-hmm. And we also don't reveal truth to people. The job of changing people and the job of revealing truth to people is the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is so, so important. We can communicate um, an idea, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit at work in the person's heart. Romans 6 teaches that it's the, it's the process of sanctification is a process that comes as a result of the Spirit. The, the work of being made like Jesus is a work that is spirit-led. The work of people encountering truth. Jesus says, I want to send the spirit of truth, right? So truth and the process of receiving that truth such that it changes us is a spirit-led process. It is not a man or human-led process. We don't force it on anyone. And so I think what we do is we pray like crazy, and what you will see is sometimes they will just disagree and think you're crazy and say horrible things. And that's okay. That's something that we have to accept. All through history, Christians have been accused of believing and saying crazy things. Um, and that's okay. But on, 
But on the other hand, we can also see that the Holy Spirit will move in people's hearts to help them see what is really true, what is really good, what is really beautiful. And if you're looking for a good story on this, um, it's been bouncing around with the missionaries quite a bit because they've been reading her books, but Rosaria Butterfield's uh, testimony is a really good example of, of this process um, and how she became a Christian. And it was really just a spirit-led spirit -led thing. Wow. So, yeah. That's encouraging, yeah. Actually, Vivian, Tiana, and I were talking about this recently, about power of the Spirit and how we aren't tasked with converting people. Like That's not what we're to be doing. We're just living out Jesus' love, and the Holy Spirit is the one who works in lives. So it's mm -hmm. a good reminder again. Mm -hmm. We have one here. Yeah. Gordon has a follow-up here. I can't read this way. Okay. <laughs> when talking to somebody that's an unbeliever about matters of truth, does it make sense to be concerned about anything besides unbelief or rejection of Jesus? Wouldn't all other issues be secondary to that since it's the foundation of all things? So, uh, yes, but. A hundred percent agree. If At the end of the day, it's all going to boil down to who is Jesus? Like Romans 10, do you confess with your mouth um, and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead? Like, can you confess with your mouth and believe your heart about who Jesus is? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I actually think that something our church needs to do is embrace uh, a more uh, urgent and specific and precise invitation for people to receive Jesus as Lord. I think we spend a lot of time leading people to Jesus, but we never ask them, would you just receive Jesus as Lord? Can you confess with your mouth? And do you believe in your heart and who Jesus is? If so, you are now a Christian. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we have some of those uh, urgent and precise conversations about who is Jesus that we, so that we could actually lead people um, sort of over the finish line, so yeah. to speak. A lot of people will get so close to committing to Jesus. And then because no one ever invites them to make the commitment or to verbalize it, they don't and it takes a lot longer. So I think our church needs to be way more urgent and precise. We're going to be teaching on this, um, of inviting people to actually, for lack of a better word, convert, but basically convert their heart from self-lordship over to Jesus' lordship in an act. So that's the yes. But for many people, um, the particular issues of Christian ethics, morality, and so forth will be made, or, uh, or scripture or so forth, will be major question points that they need to reconcile and wrestle through. And we can't just dismiss those out of hand by saying, well, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I think what we need to do is we need to not make it a major sticking point, but we do need to make sure that we have engaged people's legitimate questions uh, that will arise eventually. So yes, it's all about Jesus' lordship, but as a part of leading people to Jesus' lordship, we need to help them see that his lordship encompasses every aspect of their lives um, and help them see like the breadth of that as they may have questions about it. So, okay. does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> cool. Okay, M asks, how do we begin to look outside our lived experiences for truth and not get stuck in our own emotional response, especially when those emotions are really deep and strong? So a first great thing to do here uh, is to admit to ourselves what we are feeling. A lot of the time when people are feeling something really strongly, we try to push it down or push it away or ignore it. Um, so say you're feeling resentful or hurt or offended, mm -hmm. uh, even over something little, we just ignore it. No, it's not a big issue. I'm not going to deal with it. Or we say, uh, or we rationalize it away. We explain it away. We pretend it's not an issue. It is a terrible plan. If you want to, if you're living in a shared house with people, 
a great way to see things go sideways is to just ignore all the little issues until they boil up and blow up in everybody's face. One of the most important things that we have to learn to do is how to admit to ourselves what we are feeling and then verbalize it. Now, that, mean, that may mean verbalizing it to the people that we feel are offending us, hurting us, whatever, and then dealing with the consequences. Like we need to bring that into the open. Admit to ourselves and then verbalize or admit to ourselves and then verbalize it to somebody that can help us navigate towards the truth. But I think a lot of the time, the primary issue is that we haven't admitted or confronted what we're really feeling and asked the question, why? And then sought to do something about it. So often the mistake is not that we have, we're feeling too deeply, it's mm -hmm. that we're not feeling deeply enough. We might be feeling the emotions, but we haven't dug to go like, what, what and why am I feeling this? Mm -hmm. um, I had an encounter earlier today. I was upset about something and I was just tempted to just go and um, just be upset for the rest of the day. But I sent someone a message and I just said, hey, this is how I feel. Mm -hmm. It wasn't perfect. I didn't really think about it too much. But what it did is it just it brought it into the open. Mm -hmm. It confronted how I was feeling and, you know, we reconciled. It was all good in the end. Awesome. And I think that that the more quickly we can do that process, the better. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we over-process, we wait until it's a big issue. So final thought here, one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made is to treat little things, uh, repeated little things as irrelevant. Small things that happen over and over again are actually big things given enough time. And it's important we address them. Don't, don't, don't not feel. <laughs> <laughs> feel, please. <laughs> Admit it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. A couple more thoughts coming in. A couple people typing. Yeah, Linnea adding a good, a good insight here. So, I think that's probably good. We've been going yeah. for a bit over an hour, so. Yeah. Um, oh, Morgan gets a question. By the way, we've been trying to keep uh, things a little tighter at the top so that we can get through things a bit quicker. If you like the format, let us know. So can you read that? Sure, yes. How else can we help people see themselves as part of the larger church and recognize the value of the truth of living this way? <laughs> we can pray, but anything else that you found helpful? <laughs> um, I think one of the most important things here is that we need gravity wells of community. Okay. Um, and so... One of the things that we're kind of identifying as a bit of a weakness is that a lot of our simple churches have like really passionate simple church leaders and apprentices, and then a lot of the simple church is not as engaged. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for a simple church leader on their own to create the gravity. Yeah. So what I would do in that case, and what I'd recommend, is really bond together with other passionate leaders and integrate your simple church into that experience. So work with other simple church leaders to create... Um, like gravity wells. What I mean by that is more people that are really passionate about our church family, that really get it, that really understand, mm -hmm. that can come together, that you can invite your simple church into uh, and to be really uh, intentional about doing that. That way, instead of talking about the idea of Christian community and Christian family, people can experience it more directly by, by way of the fact that they're uh, experiencing it with you and other people that also understand. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think it's not good when our simple church leaders try to do it on their own. You're just gonna you're gonna exhaust yourself. Yeah, it's true. So, all right, community. Um, 
Cool. Some good insights being added in here. Yeah. I think the conversation could go on for a really long time, but maybe for another time or in people's small groups that they're meeting in. Yeah. Cool. We'll wrap it up. Love you guys. Have a great week. And next week, we're going to be talking about love. Oh, sweet. That'd be good. We'll see you then.